Well, as you can see this morning, we're actually getting to start a whole new book. I've been looking forward to this book. This is one of my favorite books of the entire Bible. I hope I can do it justice. Uh, But this morning, we're going to start in the very first chapter, logically enough. And uh, I think it's also important is when Marty put these, uh, the master slide together, he used a monarch butterfly. And the first part of Ephesians is all about our monarch. It's all about our king. And that's what we're going to look at this morning and hopefully gain a, a deeper appreciation of. So we're going to read, I'm going to cover the first six verses, but I'm going to read the first 14 verses because verses 3 to 14 are one sentence. <laughs> when Paul wrote this, he got so caught up in what he was saying that he just kept going on and on. And we're going to see just how amazing it is. So I'll read the first 14 verses. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have received an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Let's just open in prayer. I thank you, Father, for these uh, magnificent words. It's got to be the best run-on sentence in history. But I thank you, Father, that, that Paul was so caught up in who you are that he could not stop. He had to keep regaling you. He had to keep expressing who you are. And it's so rare, Father, to find an actual description of you like this in scripture so i thank you father that we have the opportunity to look into it this morning i'd ask that it would change us change me change each one of us draw us into a closer relationship with you as we understand just who it is that you are and where we stand in relation to you it's amazing and i thank you father that you'll do this because we ask it in jesus name amen well i have a very vivid memory several years ago of a I was driving over uh, Chinook Pass on a glorious fall day, probably making da- taking daughters to the State Fair in Puyallup for a 4-H contest. And this approximates what I saw. I don't know if you've ever gone over Chinook Pass when it's a clear day, but this is what hits you. I love the surprise of coming over a mountain pass and then being regaled by the sight of Mount Rainier up so close that you could reach out and touch it. And your eyes get drawn up towards the heavens as a result. Now I get a similar feeling, only probably worse, of awe and wonder when I read, especially the first chapters of the book of Ephesians. The realization that even the best things we see on earth are insignificant in comparison to the author of all we see and all that we experience. 
So Ephesians opens with just a few short verses in length, but it reaches to heaven in height. It's a celebration in words of the Father's blessings bestowed on us in Christ. You all know that we are by nature kind of turned in on ourselves. Even our best efforts kind of reflect back on ourselves. I mean, we are always preoccupied with our own self-interest. But our focus changes when we receive those little insights of truth from God, especially the revelation of God in his word that's focused upon God himself. Because God's speaking about himself, I not about you, but it jolts me. For a moment, it, it kind of refocuses our eyes from our going through the emotions, experiences of every day, and it kind of focuses our eyes on him. Which is exactly what Paul is giving us here. It's truth from God about God. It's not instructions on how to live a fruitful life full of meaning. It's a celebration of God himself and how he's chosen to relate to us. And of course, there's a danger in preaching the first chapter of Ephesians. Because verses 3 through 14, as I mentioned, are just one long sentence. And Paul gets so caught up that, that he goes on to talk about the majesty of God that he just can't stop celebrating. And this is a celebration, it's a praise section. The danger comes in preaching and dissecting it and not putting the parts back together again. So I'm going to ask you this morning, as I look at the, today and next time I'm going to look at these first 14 verses, first six verses today, I'm going to break them down to see what kind of insights that we can glean. But please keep the big picture in mind, keep the forest in mind while we delve down into the trees. Uh, and also, I'll let you know too, I'm not going to discuss the issues that relate to this letter, like who wrote it, was it really written to the Ephesians, what were the issues that they were facing. Dr. Reed and I will discuss that tonight <laughs> at, at, uh, at 6 o'clock here. So we will, and also it's going to be filmed too, so you can look at it later on on YouTube. But we're going to go through some of the background issues and just to give you an understanding maybe of what it was like in Ephesus when Paul was there. So we're going to do this interactively. We're going to do it face to face. Remember, that's the thing we used to do before Zoom. Um, so the first celebration that Paul talks about here is a celebration of blessing in those first three verses. He rejoiced in the fact that. He is an apostle of Messiah Jesus by the will of God. It certainly wasn't by his will. Remember, he actively persecuted God's church until Jesus met him on the Damascus off-ramp. Jesus called him to be an apostle, one who uniquely spoke, wrote, and ended up suffering for God. Jesus called him to be that. He was chosen with a special emphasis, reaching the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, for Christ. It was a miracle. It was a real miracle, and nothing less that actually made him an apostle on equal footing with those men who had spent all that, those years with Jesus while he was here on earth. So his ministry was ordained by God, although he had no ground for boasting. I mean, before he met Christ, his name was Saul. He was named after the tallest member of his tribe back in the old days, King Saul, who was one of his, one of his uh, forebears. But after coming to Christ, he takes the name Paul, which means small. The line had cut him down to size. His smallness became the living example of God's bigness. His weaknesses became a channel to show God's power more vividly. So then in verse 2, Paul moves from the celebration of God's uh, call on his own life to celebrate his brothers and sisters, the saints, the holy ones who are in Ephesus, Faithful in Christ Jesus. And calling the Ephesian people, the saints, 
bestows on them a title that was reserved in the Old Testament for special people in Israel. So applying the word saints to pagan Greeks and Romans was mind-boggling to anybody with a Jewish background. Awfully close to blasphemy. But it really is a fitting word to celebrate the miracle of God's grace in their lives. So saints, uh, faithful, in Christ Jesus, holy ones, uh, what a cause for celebration. And then uh, Paul offers this special blessing of grace and peace. And grace is the power of the future being brought into the present and made available to God's people now. It's not just a passive response to God, but it's the power of God's future kingdom now at work in overcoming principalities and powers. And peace comes from the Hebrew word shalom, which means complete contentment and joy. So grace comes first, and as it fills our lives through the Holy Spirit, it brings shalom, peace, reconciliation, wholeness, the fruit of the Spirit. So Paul celebrates his, himself in his calling to be an apostle. He celebrates the faithful saints at Ephesus, and then he celebrates their mutual blessings. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In verse 3. Now that's the opening verse of a song of celebration that I said extends all the way down to verse 14. Verse 3 is the theme of the rest of the song. God has blessed us in Christ. And the remaining verses are going to flesh out what these spiritual blessings are that he's referring to here in verse 3. The result from being seated in heavenly places with our glorious Savior. So blessed be, rejoice in, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now the, the Christian life is Father-focused because the Christian life is Father-blessed. Our praise is focused not simply upon God generically, but upon our loving and sovereign Heavenly Father, our Abba. Because that Father is the source of all spiritual blessings. And so, so the Christian life is consciously focused on praise to this God from whom all blessings flow. God is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's not a statement that Jesus had a beginning. Jesus was not created. You can see that because of the expression, He is our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a term of deity. So Paul is pressing home the truth to us that it's God, that God sees you now as in Christ. So closely held by Jesus that now your Father is it, that God is now your Father in Jesus Christ. You have a similar relationship that God the Son has to the Father now because you're in Jesus. I mean, if only we could under, I'll surrender to that understanding in our hearts all the way down to our core. If only we could get that burned into our subconscious. So our, our, our understanding of the Father is greatly influenced by experiences with our earthly fathers. Some of us remember, some of us remember our fathers with joy and thanksgiving, but some of us remember our earthly fathers with heartache because we didn't experience the godly love of a Christian man. Some of us don't remember a father. Some of us lost our fathers. Some of us had fathers who abandoned us. And our experience with our fathers impacts our understanding of what our Heavenly Father is like. But it doesn't need to stay that way. That's what this is about. 
Because everyone in this room who now loves the Lord Jesus experienced imperfect or absent fathers. Speaking as a father, none of us are perfect. Some of us come close, but no. Um, And God loves to knock down those false images of what fatherhood is like. No matter what your experience has been in this world with an earthly father, you have a heavenly father who gives only good things and good gifts. In fact, every good thing that you've experienced, Paul says, has come from the hand of your heavenly father. The father has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. So the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives is not the work of trying to convince the Father to love you. The work of the Lord Jesus Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit is the expression of a Father who already loves you. He doesn't need convincing. Christ is on that tree not to get the Father to love you, but because the Father does love you. The Holy Spirit is indwelling you not to get the Father to love you, but to make make you lovable enough for the Father to love you maybe in the future, but because the Father loves you right now. And that is great cause for celebration. We are blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, spiritual blessings are special favors. They are basically uh, blessings from the Spirit. Special favors bestowed on every believer by God the Father by means of his Holy Spirit. There's at least five of these spiritual blessings we're going to look at in in the following 11 verses. Well, where are these heavenly places? I haven't been there yet. Some have written books about taking a tour there, but those are spurious at best. Heavenly places is where Christ is now enthroned, seated at the Father's right hand, the place of power. God's great power worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Think of it. We're enthroned with Jesus, the ruler of the universe, in the unseen universe behind the one that we experience with our five senses. I mean, physically, we live here on earth, but spiritually, down to the very core of our being, our very spirit, we live in the heavenly realms where Jesus lives. And Paul wants us to immerse ourselves in this truth by faith and to celebrate it. Because these heavenly places are not just a figure of speech. I mean, if it were, Jesus' presence there would be just a figure of speech. But we know from what Hebrews says that Jesus actually ascended to the Father, and he sits with the Father. He's enthroned. Jesus took his rightful place on the throne, the throne that he left to redeem us in the first place. So the heavenly place of Jesus' presence is more real than anything that we can know in this world. It's real reality. And Paul says we are now seated with Christ. We are seated with Jesus as his holy ones, his saints. And being seated with Christ is not just for super spiritual folks. It's for anyone who names the name of Jesus. Notice that the Christian life does not begin by walking. It begins with sitting. This is a kind of reversal of how we usually think. I mean, if we don't walk, how are we ever going to get anywhere? 
But don't we have to move to get somewhere? But Christianity does not begin with a big do. It begins with a big done. God has blessed us. It is already done. When we walk, you know, we use considerable energy. But when we're seated, we relax. Instead of supporting ourselves, we let our chair or whatever it is we're sitting on, something outside of ourselves support us. It's a picture of letting Jesus bear the loads we carry and seek to try to carry them ourselves. God hints at this in Genesis chapter 1. Remember, as we all remember, we're going through the book of Genesis. That was a long time ago, wasn't it now? But anyway, God created the heavens and the earth in six days. And remember that Adam was created on day six. He was the last thing that was created. So Adam's first full day on earth was the Sabbath, the day of God's and Adam's rest. He didn't start out his duties of tending and guarding the Garden of Eden until after he'd rested for a day. He started out sitting, not walking and not working. So as we rest in Jesus, we're granted blessings from the Father through Jesus, he says, that are distributed by the Holy Spirit to whomever he will. And these are what are spiritual blessings. They're distributed by the Spirit. Now, in the Old Testament, you know, the blessings were primarily tangible. There were things like, uh, you know, good harvests or protection from enemies or, or strong families or fruitful animals. Uh, and for us, blessings are directed more inwardly to enable a, our newly created heart, really, to change our attitudes, to change our desires, to change the things that we cherish. In the, New, in the New Testament, God works from the inside out, not from the outside in. It's as if we're already tasting the glories of eternity in heaven now, in Christ, by the Spirit, from our Heavenly Father. That's a life-altering reality to celebrate. So let this burn deep into your consciousness. Wherever you are in your life, with whatever struggles, whatever disappointments you're encountering, Think on this. You are really seated with Christ in his throne and your inner being. This is not theory. This is not hypothetical. This is reality. The reality behind the reality we think is real. And that's our starting point with Jesus. That's where we start. And on top of that, our Heavenly Father has heaped on you every spiritual blessing. Paul's going to amplify those spiritual blessings throughout the rest of this, these first 14 verses. But let's look at the first one. Let's look at the first spiritual blessing. The celebration of election. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace in which he has blessed us in the beloved. If we jump down to verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Well, before I jump in and explore those loaded words of choosing or election and predestination, look at the very first part of verse 4. This is the first spiritual blessing that's promised in verse 3. He chose us in him. He chose us in Jesus before the foundation of the world. So spiritual blessings, I mean, all the good things that God was conspiring and designing for us to heap upon us didn't just start 2,000 years ago at the cross. It didn't start 2,000 years before that with Abraham. It didn't start however many thousand years before that 
with Adam and Eve, it started before the foundation of the world. Before even starting his creation of the heavens and the earth, he determined that he would bless his people. So in, in this pre-creation time, in the pre-creation eternity, God did something. He had a purpose in mind. A purpose that included both Christ and us. God put us and Christ together in his mind, as I visualize it. He, he says he chose us in Christ. He determined to make us, who didn't exist yet, his own children through the redeeming work of Christ, and that hadn't happened yet. This rose completely from God's grace. Since he chose us, he says that we should be holy and blameless before him. Which tells me also that in his mind he chose us, we were unholy and blameworthy and deserving of judgment and not adoption as children. He knew even then a redeemer would be necessary. He didn't decide to send Jesus after Adam and Eve sinned. Jesus knew he was coming before creation even started. Now God's choosing of his children is called the doctrine of election. This is real election, not the sham we saw last November. Sorry. Uh, the difference between election or choosing, which is mentioned in verse 4, and predestination, which is mentioned in verse 5, is that election refers to God's freedom in choosing he will predestine. Predestination refers to the goal or the destiny for which he chose them. Election is God's choosing, God's choosing whom he will, and predestination is God's decision that they will become his children. The two doctrines go together. So when God chose you, he had a purpose. And so we predestined that purpose to come about, namely, that you would become a child of God, that you become part of his forever family, that you become an heir of all that God owns, a joint heir with his son, that you take on the family likeness. And your destiny to become God's children is mentioned in verse 5. He says he predestined us for what? For adoption. And one meaning of that, the family likeness, is mentioned at the end of verse 4. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Well, why? To what end? For what destiny? That we should be holy and blameless before him in love. That's the practical content of our destiny as God's children. We're destined to take on the character of God our Father, the character of holiness and blamelessness. That's our real destiny not the impersonal force in Star Wars. Your destiny lies with me, Skywalker. And of course, not our usual thoughts about our personal destiny seen here in the eyes of the face of the rebel pilot. I don't know if you can read the words down at the bottom there. It says, destiny, you may not become the savior of the galaxy, but take consolation in knowing that you draw fire away from the chosen one. Unfortunately, that's how a lot of us view destiny. So election and predestination, as we already know, generate a whole lot more heat than light. But I submit that all Christians believe in predestination. Although I have heard people where I've spoken to that said, no, we're a Baptist, we don't believe in predestination. Well, let's see if they actually do. So there's three options, I think. Three logical options regarding our long-term future. Option one is that God could make all people his children in Christ. 
But the first three chapters of Paul's letter to the Romans labor to help us see that there's none of us righteous, no, not one. We're all deserving of condemnation. We're all under judgment. So obviously that isn't his option, that he's going to make everybody his child. Option two is that, well, he's not going to save anybody. Nobody's going to inherit eternal life with Jesus, that we're all hopelessly condemned, which would mean that Jesus' role here on earth was unnecessary or else it's a case of cosmic child abuse. Now, option three is the one that it says that some will be saved and some won't. I think we're all on option three, aren't we? Hope so. But the real issue is, well, why do some folks believe and others don't? Some might say, well, you just don't have enough faith to make a, a decision for the Lord. You have to bring something to the party. You have to exercise your faith. And one evangelist uh, used this famous illustration, made famous by R.C. Sproul. And that is, imagine that you're swimming in the ocean and you're beginning to drown. Someone comes near with a boat and he throws a life preserver to you, but it's just out of your reach. So before you go down for the third time, you've got to reach out and you've got to grab that life preserver. You've got to respond to the gospel. You've got to ask Jesus into your heart. You've got to sing, just as I am, one more time, so that you don't perish eternally. It sounds like a good illustration, right, of how a person comes to faith in Jesus. There's only one problem. It doesn't fit what the Bible teaches. The Bible is clear that we are dead in our sins and trespasses. We're going to see this later on in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So, and you know, as Miracle Max reminds us, if we're dead, we're not a little bit alive. If we're dead, we're on the bottom of the ocean already. And a life preserver is not going to do us any good. We need rescue. We need resuscitation. We need new life. So the question really boils down to is, how does God decide who to regenerate, who to save? And Paul is quite clear that God made this decision before he even began creating the heavens and the earth. So election and predestination are doctrines that we tend to argue about, but the Apostle Paul sees it really as a matter of praise and a matter of great comfort to the Christian, not a matter of doctrinal dissension. Well, why is that? Well, just as God blessed you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, so you need to know, brothers and sisters, that from before the foundation of the world, he set his love on you. Before you existed in space and time, he set his love on you. So that your love to him is simply the response of his prior love directed toward you. He didn't choose you because of something that you would do. He responded to the gospel because of something that he set in motion before the foundation of the world. And it's his choice alone. It's the prerogative of the creator to set the rules. But Christians really are the objects of an eternal choice. Another way this doctrine is explained by evangelists goes something like this. For each person who's not a Christian, there's three votes. God gets one vote, Satan gets one vote, and the deciding vote is you. You have to make a decision for Christ. 
And to them, that's the election. Well, first off, I would say that's wrong. Isn't that not anywhere, taught anywhere in the Bible I can find? And second of all, even if it were right, it's not what Paul is talking about here. Because Paul is ta- not talking about an auction, a choice that you make. He's talking about an election that God already made, a choice that he made before the foundation of the world. So it can't be based on anything that we've done. And furthermore, he says this election is made in Christ. So it isn't anything, there isn't anything about in us that he's just worried about or concerned about or that causes him to love us. It's all about glorifying his son, the beloved. So I think Paul is saying, Christian, your security, the ground of your security in the Christian life is not found by looking for something that will make you secure. It's by looking into the face of the Lord Jesus Christ and seeing God's eternal, saving, blessing choice of you. We love because he first loved us. We don't come to the Father unless the Father draws us. It's not the other way around. But Paul's not finished yet. To live, to live in love and to walk in love is, is part of our destiny in verses 4 and 5. God predestined us to be his children, and that means he destined us to, to be like him, to be holy, to be blameless, that is, to live in love toward each other and to all men. John put it like this in 1 John chapter 3, verse 10. By this the children of God are manifest. The one who does not love his brother is not a child of God. So your destiny is to be holy, as your Father is holy. And that means that your very essence is to love. For God your Father is love. And you're going to reflect your Father. Further on in 1 John chapter 4, 1 John 4, 8, he says, Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. You are predestined to be like your Father. But even that's not your highest destiny. The highest destiny is described in verse 6. So why has God predestined us to be his adopted children, to be holy and blameless in love? to the praise of his glorious grace. So our holiness, our blamelessness, and our love and our adoption are not ends in themselves. They exist for something greater. And that purpose is the praise of the glory of God's grace. What on earth does that mean? Well, the ultimate goal that God has in election and predestination is that God might be praised for his glory, for who he really is. And the highest point of that glory is grace. This is the final goal of our destiny. There is no higher hope, no more meaningful future, no more worthy cause to live for than to reflect and to actually magnify the glory of God's grace forever and ever. And we're going to do it forever and ever. The certainty of that destiny is grounded in the freedom of God and the all-sufficient work of his son, Jesus. You know, we could spend eternity just praising God that he didn't give us what we deserve and send us to hell. But we have more than that to praise him for. He's made us joint heirs with Christ. He's now our elder brother as we're united to him by faith. God sees us in Christ. And this is just the first of the the spiritual blessings we're going to look at as we go through to verse 14. 
So what's your share? When you're a recipient of the benefits of spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, you'll find that they never diminish. You don't need an extended warranty. God's blessings always expand. They're inexhaustible. Paul is saying to those Ephesians who are facing persecution and false teachers, you are a joint heir with the one who rules over all things by the word of his power. You are adopted as a child into the family of God. Your last name is God's name. So predestination and faith in Jesus Christ are not two alternatives for the Apostle Paul. They fit hand in glove. It's not either that you believe in predestination or you believe that everyone who is going to be saved must trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation as he's offered the gospel. Those are not two competing interests. You believe both if you're a biblical Christian. One commentator explained it like this. On front of the narrow door leading to salvation are the words, Come unto me, all you that are heavily burdened, and I'll give you rest. If the person chooses Christ and goes through that door and looks back, that same door says, In love he predestined us for adoption. Two sides of the same door. One truth in two statements. But the ultimate ground, the deepest foundation of our becoming blameless and holy in love, is not the death of God's Son. It goes deeper than that. Paul points to a deeper ground, namely the sovereign free will of God. God predestined us to adoption through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. So we owe our adoption into God's family to the good pleasure of God's will. We were chosen before the foundation of the world. We were predestined to adoption and holiness and love, not according to what we had done and what we might do, what we understood according to who our parents were or what our religious background was or our race or whatever else it might be. We were chosen, and he says, and predestined according to the good pleasure of God's free will. So what was God's purpose in doing this? Why did he set his love on us from before the foundation of the world adopting us as his children and giving us all the benefits and inheritance of Jesus Christ and enabling us to exercise saving faith and being united to him by the Holy Spirit. What was God doing? And verse 6 says, he was exalting his glorious grace. To the praise of his glorious grace, he predestined us to adoption as sons and daughters to the praise of his glorious grace grace. So why were we predestined into salvation? Why are we why are we predestined for adoption? To maximize God's glory. To magnify his character for everyone to see. Not just so we can be content and rest on our laurels and figure we have a paid up fire insurance policy. That's not it. He has something greater for us. But think about it. God is unique. And he's the most glorious and most beautiful of all beings. And he's totally self-sufficient. He needs nothing. So he has to be for himself in order to be for us. I mean, he's the best in the universe. And he needs to do all that he can to magnify himself. He knows that we need more and more of him. More of the best is what his creatures need. And that's what he wants to do is give us his best. So in view of the fact that God is, has infinitely admirable beauty and power and wisdom, what would his love to one of his creatures look like? What's the best thing in the universe 
to give us, to show us his love. Himself. Doesn't get any better than that. If God would love us perfectly, he must offer us no less than himself for our enjoyment and fellowship. Which is why God sent his son. Ephesians 2.18 tells us that Christ came that we might have access in one spirit to the Father. God conceived the whole plan of redemption and love to bring men back to himself. For as the psalmist says, in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. God is after us to give us what is best. Not prestige, not wealth, not health, but a joyful experience of fellowship with himself. That's the best thing he could offer. So to be supremely loving, God must give us what will be the best for us. He must give us himself. But what do we do when we're given or shown something awe-inspiring and something that we end up enjoying? I mean, like the sunrise this morning, if you had a chance to see it. What do we do when we see things that are awe-inspiring like that? We praise it. It's an automatic response. Which is one of my favorite quotes from C.S. Lewis. Brings us to this. In his, in his book on the Psalms. He says, The most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or the giving of honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise unless, sometimes even if, shyness or the fear of boring others is deliberately brought in to check it. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game, praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians and scholars. My whole more general difficulty about the praise of God depended on my absurdly denying to us as it regards the supremely valuable what we'd like to do, what indeed we can't help doing about everything else that we value. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise, is not mere, the praise not merely expresses, but it completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It's not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it's expressed. Our delight in God is incomplete until it's expressed. God's light in us is incomplete until it's expressed. Hence, we have a Bible. So there's the key. We praise what we enjoy because the delight is incomplete until it's expressed in praise. If we were not allowed to speak of what we value and celebrate, what we love and praise, what we admire, our joy would not be full. So, for, so therefore, if God is truly for us, if he would give us the best and make our joy full, he must make it his aim to win our praise for himself. Not because he needs to shore up some weakness in himself or compensate for some deficiency, but because he loves us and he knows what's best for us is to offer praise to him because that makes our joy complete. The fullness of our joy can be found in knowing and praising him, the most beautiful of all beings, the most powerful of all beings, and the freest of all beings in what he chooses to do. Because God is the one being in the entire universe for whom seeking his own praise 
is the ultimate loving act. For him, self-exaltation is the highest virtue. We don't like to see self-exaltation in, in humans because they're too much like us. But for God, it is the highest aspect of his self-exaltation. It's the fact that he is worthy of all praise. And he's the only one that's worthy of all praise. And seeking his own praise is ultimately a loving act for us. It's the highest virtue. So when he does all things for the praise of his glorious grace, as verse 6 says, he preserves for us and he offers to us the only thing in all the world that can satisfy our deepest longings. God is for us and therefore has been, is now, and always will be for himself at the same time. God is for us and therefore has been, is now, and always will be for himself at the same time. Our joy is bound up in God's praise. The two go together. So let's praise the Lord. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord, as the psalmist says. Let's close in prayer. The more we think about these words, Father, the more amazing they are. Just actually having words that talk about God from the perspective of God, not just about what he can do, what he has done, but looking at your very qualities, your very characteristics, your very attributes. Oh, Father, draw us into yourself. Let us experience you as we, as we praise through music, through your, through your word, through praying through your word, through studying your word, all these areas where you give us opportunity to praise, which is our highest goal. And I thank you, Father, that while you, the things that you give us lead us into actually desiring to put you at the top of everything. Because that's where you belong, and that's where we're going to find our fullest joy. When we find that you can meet all of our needs, we find that we're fully contented in you. We can offer praise. And I thank you that that's what you do for us. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.